As I mentioned last week, we will go back into the book of Acts for a while. Actually, for about four weeks. We started on the first eight verses of chapter 14 last week. I will continue from 8 to 28. Uh, I probably will not finish them all. I'll do the best I can, though. How's that? Starting in verse 8. Listen to the word of God. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, Lassonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. For Jews came down from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fast, and they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We're going to stop there. Let's pray. Father. We ask you to breathe upon the text today, God. Help me as I try to bring out the beautiful gospel truths that are in here, to try to do the best I can with Christian history, that we can see the beauty of how you operated 2,000 years ago, and that we can learn from the blueprint of Acts how you're still working in our communities today, Father God, how you call us to bring good news, God. We might not walk in the power of an apostle, Father, But we have the same good news they had. So help us, Father God, to share the good news with our friends and our family and our community. That they too, Father God, can escape from vain, superstitious understandings of who God is. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. As I was preparing last week to preach out of Acts, and I continue to think about it all week, I ran into one of the brothers, and we were on the treadmill together, or the stepper, and we were discussing things, and he had just finished telling me he had finished the book of Acts, and had moved on to the book of Romans, and he was making a, a contrast between the two, how Acts was difficult to grasp as a history book, but when he went into the book of Romans, being a, a thinker, he, he, he gravitated, he saw the immense value of doctrine immediately, and it got me thinking. You know, that when we read the book of Acts, to be sure, it's history. It's Christian history. And it might not look like it's throwing its gems at you right away. But God wants us to understand the blueprint on how he has worked in the past. Because guess what? It's how he's working now. The only thing that changes, the culture changes, languages change, clothing change. But the human heart is still the same. Nothing has changed in the human heart. With all the enlightenment of, the, uh, of humanism and secularism, they still need God desperately. And that has not changed. And the message of Jesus Christ has not changed. The way we do it has not changed. How we do it sometimes 
we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. We're going to see Paul taking a different approach to these people than he did with the other city prior to this of last week. He took two different approaches, and that's called contextualization. I will speak about that, but make sure that it's a necessity to really understand how God reacts to the human problem of sin and suffering. And to get an understanding from a historical perspective and then apply that to our life and to see the gems of it, of how relative, and our job as ministers and as pastors and as preachers is to not just try to make a text uh, relevant, that means easily applicable to our life, but to be faithful to what the original writer said. You have to do both. So keep that always in prayer for me and John as we're preparing messages because we just don't want to tell you do better. Christianity is not about just do better. Uh, Try harder. Stop sinning. Stop being a drunk. Stop. I mean, those are elementary things in Christianity. You learn that in the first six months. But we have to learn how to worship God. And to see how magnificent God is. And that some of the best application of Bible reading is just to sit back and say, wow, God is incredible. And I use this example many times when you're looking at just the magnificent sunset. They're all magnificent, but the truth of the matter is some are better than others, aren't they? And it depends on where you are in the world, what season you are in. And sometimes you're just flabbergasted on just how incredible the sky is lighting up before you. And... You're with other people, you don't know them, but everybody is captivated by what's taking place. And no one's talking. The only language going on is the language of awe. And so it is with the Bible. Sometimes you have to sit back and say, wow, God is incredible. That's the only application you need. We live in such... A therapeutic society that we think that every time we come through the doors of the church, I have to have something that's going to make me feel better. Who wants to feel better today? <laughs> Who? We got one, okay. <laughs> one, two honest people, all right. All right, there we go. There we want that therapeutic message. What did they say? What did the homily mean to you? How did it touch you? And how do you apply it right away? How about you leave here and today say, what did you learn? You say, God is incredible. Amen. Because once that is the main ingredient to your life of faith, God is incredible, guess what? You won't need your feelings touched. Your soul will be touched. And there's something deeper in us than our feelings. It's the soul. Let me talk about something here. After I take... What's this? Is this for me? A little red sauce. I'm in. If that was real, I might be taking a bite out. Are we doing communion with this today? Oh. Let me talk some of about a fancy word we learned in school called contextualization. We have to understand that when we're going through the book of Acts, especially in uh, our story tonight, and especially in our society. How many people want to share their faith with others? It's not one size fits all. You know that, right? You've got to make an assessment of the people and their background and understanding. You know, you have to learn how to do this. And we're going to talk about that. We have one message going into the world of many different approaches to life, many different religions, many different backgrounds, many different philosophies. You can't have one size fits all. We have to think on our feet when we're sharing Jesus Christ. There are many, many different personalities around us, and we need to understand people's backgrounds. We have to have wisdom on how to approach people. When's the right time to speak to them about the Lord? How about making a friend first? How's that? How about making a friend and and walking with somebody for a length of time as they're going through the trials of their life, and then say, hey, let's pray. I'm going to share my faith with you. This is what God has done for me in the lowest times of my life. Uh, And he'll do this for you. I know he's a good God, isn't he? That's contextualization. It's not one size. You've got to meet people. You've got to know people. You've got to feel people. You've got to have empathy and sympathy for people. You've got to allow people to speak 
about their fears and their hopes and their disappointments about life and maybe and their fears about God, their disappointments about the, maybe the Christian faith. A lot of people are disappointed in the Christian faith. They think that all Christianity is Roman Catholicism. And it's most unfortunate. We all come out of that. Most of us in this room come out of a, a mainstream orthodox background. We find ourselves being saved, being born again, coming to a small evangelical church where we learn the Bible, we learn about Christ, we really learn the true faith. And, you know, we have to be sensitive to people. A lot of people hurt out there, amen? So I say all that because that's part of our text tonight. Our story here tonight, as we just read, starts with a familiar theme in the book of Acts. a matter of fact, the whole Bible. Going back to chapter 3 of Genesis. And that is Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and they have a mixed reception to the message about Jesus' love. Some believe, like the crippled man. Some don't believe. Others are still violently persecuting them. They hate to hear what they're hearing. It's more than just a disagreement. They can't bear to hear these words about Jesus and about salvation and about forgiveness. And the apostles, once again, have to flee, basically, for their life. That's the whole book of Acts. They're constantly being chased out of one town after another after another. Actually, tonight's text, they actually stoned Paul and left him for dead. Luke, our author, tells the story about the healing of a crippled man from his birth. Then on to its repercussions. So what we have here, we have a, the author, Luke, is, is highlighting, taking a snapshot out of Paul's ministry. And he's sort of, you know, highlighting it today in time-lapse photography. We're looking at this whole situation very slowly. we got 28 chapters in the book of Luke. So it's written uh, to... Uh, bring forth the first 30 years of Christian history. That's not a lot of chapters for 30 years. So what Luke has done, he has condensed everything. Everything is condensed where it looks like one thing's happened right after the other, within an hour or within a day. Where really it's many hours, many days, and even many weeks and months from one chapter to another. You have to take that into consideration as I explain what's going on over here. So let's pick it up in, the, in, the, in verse 8. We're going to go through some of these verses, if I can make it through, before communion. And uh, I'll make some applications at the end. But just sit back in awe of how incredible God is. Sit back. It starts in verse 8. Listen to the story of God's redeeming love. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Luke tells us he was crippled from the birth and had never walked from birth. This man in our story is a chosen instrument for God to show his glory. Don't miss this. This is not just any ordinary beggar. This is someone the whole town, the whole community, the whole city knew. He had never walked one moment of his entire existence as a human being. He depended on others monetarily and and, and logistically to move him around from morning to night. So he can basically receive alms. Everybody knew this man. And guess who else knew him? God. Everybody in the town knew who this man was. So when God heals him, guess what? Everybody's going to know something incredible happened. And that's the way it was meant to be. To give God the glory. Everyone knew him. And most likely both liked him and felt a deep compassion for this man. For as this disability left him in a state of constant reliance on other people. What a place for God to start his appeal. This is a brand new town. It's a brand new city. They've never heard about Jesus before. They know very little about the Jewish faith. There's no synagogue here. It's 20 miles from the the last city they left. There's very little they know about the true and living God. 
It sounds like today's culture, doesn't it? There's a lot of religion and a lot of superstition, but very real little knowledge of God and who he is. But what a place for God to start his appeal to the hearts of the men to be saved in this city. Something outstanding is going to happen to this man and to this whole town. This is shocking. And I don't want you to miss this. This is how God operates. I will speak about this man in our application at the end of the sermon. But I'm going to move on. Listen to verses 9 and 10 now. This man listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. The Bible doesn't tell us how, but Paul detected something. And he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet with authority. And he sprang up and began walking. I was in Bulgaria about about 12 years ago. Me and my wife were at, we were doing evangelism in Bulgaria. And uh, we were in this town filled with gypsies. And there the preachers were preaching and the rest of us were helping out. And then they all marched up this hill about a half a mile straight uphill. It looked like Iwo Jima. And that's where the church was. And I was outside. I guess I was the biggest guy from America, so I was the bouncer outside. There was, was a bad crowd. You know, Bulgaria, around the gypsies. These are, this is a tough area to be in doing evangelism. So they had me out with some other big guy. And, and there we are. And we see someone coming up the block. And it's a man I saw in town. And he was on crutches. And you could see he had a stroke. or He was crippled. You could see the stroke. You could see the hand. He had the look. And... And he was striving to get up the hill. And it, it must have took him forever to get up to that hill. And he went into the church. And I didn't know anything. And, uh, and about a half hour later or something, I hear people cheering. And I ran in. And I saw this man with the crutches down running around. He was running. And the only thing I can remember, and I can remember his face right now, were the tears of joy. Pouring out of his face. Not that a crippled man was walking. That alone was incredible. But the tears. Rolling down his face. It it, it touched me. So much. It's not something we see a lot. But God does it still. You know where when. That's up to God. You know but when you see something like that. It is awe inspiring. Because the most important thing is not just his physical well-being. is that his faith in Christ had made him well. And he was restored to God. And God had compassion on his broken body. This man had faith that made him well, the text teaches us. And we would think, well, you know, he had faith. But it could be misleading because often Jesus uses this same verb. And it actually means... Your faith to be has saved you. So often you see it in, in, in Matthew chapter 9. You see it in Matthew chapter 5, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. You see it in Luke 4 or 5 times that Jesus healed somebody and he said, Go, your faith has saved you. So this man's looking at Paul and you would think he would be the first one to grumble, right? How come God has made me? You ever hear that one? If God so loved me, then why am I? But you know something? It's usually the person that's suffering that rarely complains. It's the people around the sufferer that are saying, why did God do this? And why did God do that? But in the scripture, we never see an invalid complaining. But we actually see them have great faith. And this man hears about the forgiveness of Christ. He hears about this man Christ who died and was raised again. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And his forgiveness of sins. And he's looking at Paul. And he's zeroed in. And Paul recognizes this man has faith. And he calls him out. And the rest is history. Because 
of his faith in the gospel message that Paul has been speaking about for some time, that the man believed Paul's message. And this faith in God's saving work primed him to be healed. And it wasn't just for him. It was for everybody in that town that knew him. Miracles in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, are to verify both the message and the messenger that they're from God. Listen to what they have to say. That's what we have taken on here. Paul knowing that God at times will use a miracle to approve the message. And the messenger spoke with such a spiritual authority, such a spiritual tone, that only apostles can do. And he spoke, and the man stood up, he jumped up on the command of the Apostle Paul. This healing captures everyone's attention because that was part of what it was supposed to do. God was not a sort of opportunist, taking advantage of the cripple. Well, I want to show my power off and well, I'll use you. I got no one else to use. No, no, no. God genuinely cared for this man like a tender shepherd. But he also wanted everybody else to know that God is in town. Listen to verses 11 to 13. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, not God, they lifted up their voices saying, Locinium, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So far, so good. This is where things get real messy. This is where things get real messy. When the living God does wonderful things in a pagan land or just in a pagan life, their only resource for understanding is their own personal elementary knowledge of God. They actually think that the local deities that they've been worshiping for centuries have really come down. They really think that the trinkets they make with their hands and these temples they make and these superficial sacrifices they give to God really please the gods that they actually came down. They're not hearing anything Paul has to say. Right away they go into worshiping them. These people have no other recourse than to think that the patron gods have come down. The local deities have come down in human form. You know, cultural religion is deeply entrenched in the human heart. Cultural religion. Speaking to my aunt about something one day, and we were speaking about God, and she was saying, yes, 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 yes. And then she goes, look, I was praying, and she opens up the closet door, and there's a picture of Mary there. And I'm like, Ma, I'm like, no, Mary didn't do that. Jesus did it. But that's the same thing. See, we come out of Catholicism, and we're so deeply entrenched that, you know, we really think Mary came down or St. Joseph came down or someone else did something. My father can hear me. My grandfather's watching over me. You know, and, you're, and like you're listening. I'm a pastor. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, but you got to get to them one day and say, no. Only Jesus can hear. No one else can hear. Jesus. Mary can't hear. Our ancestors, they cannot hear. Only Jesus is alive to hear us. That's it. So we got to do that in a very loving way. That's contextualization. You just can't pull the rug out from underneath people. You got to sort of walk with them, walk with their pain, walk with their superstition. But the day does come, we have to explain that's not the real Jesus. Are you with me? It's important for us, but we have to be very diplomatic. We've got to be very kind, very sensitive. We just can't beat people down and say, well, that's not the way it is. Listen to what the Bible says. Eventually, we do want to teach them the truth, but we've got to be sensitive. 
That's the only alternative they have to worship. They don't know. That's the power of superstition. They're blinded. But listen to what Paul goes on to happen in, in, in verses 14 and 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the like nature with you. And we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's with them. That's God's qualification. In the past generations, he has allowed all the nations to walk in their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did, not, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. For Paul and Barnabas, this is absolutely unacceptable. The thought about being worshipped to a Jew who knew there's only one true God, the thought that they didn't see past Paul and Barnabas and that they were worshipped, unacceptable. And goes to show their horror at such a thought. And this again is where contextualization comes in. They know their audience. They know they're not Jewish, Jewish educated like many of the others who heard the message. They knew instinctively that there's only one God who created all things. But this crowd didn't. He met them in their need. That's why Paul spoke to the Jews when he spoke to them out of the, the scriptures. But when he spoke to these people, he went back to creation. One true living God. He didn't start quoting Isaiah. He didn't quote anybody. He just went right back to a commonality we all have. And guess that, what that is? One God. Who has met us. Who has blessed us. Paul is pointing to his benevolence. This great God King, the benevolence of this wonderful God who has given us joy and food and laughter in our heart. Now remember, we only have a few words here. We can rest assured that Paul spoke at length on the one true living God who created all things and created men in his image. And what the commonality is, we're all created in the image of God. This is the commonality. And then he's pointing to the credentials of God, that he's a good God. He's a benevolent God. He gives the rains. He gives the seasons. He gives food. And he goes on to talk more about the one intangibles of life, the great intangible. He gives gladness in the heart. These people never knew the true and living God. But Paul qualified God as he's the one who puts gladness in people's hearts. People don't realize that. If God was so powerful, I get that one all the time. If God was so powerful, how come they're suffering? And I said, how come you have happiness? How come people suffer? And I said, how come you have a wonderful family? How come this happens? And I said, what about your success? God gives gladness to heart to every human being. Christians better understand that. God cares for every human being. Let me tell you a secret. Can you hear it? God's not a conservative and he's not a Democrat. I hope you understand that. God would never be lowered to man's government. He's the king of all governments. And no one is as as benevolent, as caring, as giving, as compassionate as the one true God is. No one is. Only God. Paul knew this, and this is where he met them. And though we only have a couple of verses of scripture, you can rest assured this probably took place for some time. Paul spoke to him from the Genesis account. Verse 15 goes to show, it's not just about saying, I believe in Jesus. Or verse 20, I think it is. Let me read verse 20. Can you put verse 20 up there? But when the disciples, oh, go back to 15. Guess that's wrong. 
Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. You see, this is not about just believing in Jesus. There comes a time in a Christian's life we got to tell people we have to turn from vain, superstitious things. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where people, are they going to put down their ancestral religion of what mommy taught them and daddy taught them or what they saw grandma and grandpa do? Are they going to put down vain elementary, rudimentary doctrines of scripture? Are they going to put down the rosary? Are they going to put down the figurines of Mary? I had to go through that. Are they going to put down these things? We have to turn away from the vain things. Paul tells me you have to turn away from the vain things. But that people should turn from foolish, soul-threatening superstitions and come to the loving, giving, benevolent, living God who created all things. And that's Paul, what's what he wants to do here. That's what we have to learn how to do. He finds commonality with them in order to warn them and to educate them. The Christian faith is intellectually stimulating for those who read through their Bible and study the scriptures. The Christian faith is not just about, well, just come and believe in Jesus, say a prayer. No, 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 no. There's nothing more intellectually engaging on this planet than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing. Back in the 15, 16, 1700s, it was actually called the queen of theology. The queen of all learning. Every professor, you could be a professor of English, of math, but everybody learned theology. High thinking. He explains that the one true living God is the one who does good to people regardless of their religions, regardless of their backgrounds. And he reminds them that he does this in order that somehow, some way, they might look for God. Somehow. There has to be a creator. There has to be one real true living God that can meet my deepest human need for a greater fellowship. A greater fellowship that my children can give me. A greater fellowship uh, that my wife can give me. Something that touches the soul. A human being can't touch the soul and make it last forever. But the one true living God, guess what? He can and he does. Only God can do that. This is God's witness of himself. Again, specifically of his benevolence towards humanity. But as verse 18 reminds us, that they're so blinded by ignorance and superstition, they couldn't even hear Paul's reasoning. A living God made no sense to them. A God that meets man's needs. Represented in healing and salvation. There is a message of God's will and personal touch and the love of this man from Galilee named Jesus. This this personal touch on the soul that no philosophy, no cult, no religion could ever give. Only the Christian religion can teach men undeniably that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The message that Paul preached, the message that Barnabas preached, the message that all the apostles preached, the message we preach today, that if we get beaten, we continue to preach. If we get mocked, we continue to live it. If we get scolded, we continue to love people. Why? Because it is the message from the living God that can change your life for eternity. And when you know that, you won't be afraid of what man can do to you. In our text, guess what happens when they're persecuted? They get up and they go to another town. That's all. We'll just go somewhere else. Verse 19 is a real eye-opener into the ignorance of the human heart. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds. Now these are the same people that days before or hours before were worshipping Paul as God they were persuaded to stone him how finicky is human nature do you remember they did that to somebody else 
Remember they did that for Jesus? Remember when he came in? He came into the city. They were all rejoicing. Messiah, Messiah. Hosanna in the highest. And then a week later, crucify him, crucify him. Remember Moses? They were cheering Moses when he took him out of the land of Egypt. And then when they got tested for a while, they wanted to go back. They wanted to stone Moses too. This is what happens. People think the life of the Christian faith is easy. And when the hard times come, that really lets you know what's going on inside. That's what hard times are there for. What's really going on inside? Everybody loves Jesus when everything is good. How do you go through it when life is challenging? The one verse here just doesn't capture the sheer horror. They stoned Paul to death. It looks like Luke just says that and moves on. He wants to say more, but he's trying to make a point here. He's moving in a direction. There's a trajectory over here that we have to see. God makes sure the stories in the Bible to show how self-deceived humans can really be at certain times. And just because a miracle has taken... How many people would love to see miracles? Yeah. Well, you'll be careful because they might stone you to death after that. It is a finicky crowd. This miracle didn't bring any, didn't make a hill of beans. They still killed them. Because as Pastor John taught me many years ago, if someone can teach you, teach you uh, talk you into Jesus, guess what? Someone's going to talk you out of it. And that's what's going on here. We got these hostile Jewish people came. They spoke bad against, against Paul, bad against Barnabas, to the point that they turned around and stoned them. More could be said. But verse 20 holds out some hope. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Listen to this. One moment he's dead. He gets up like it's nothing. He enters the city. The next day he goes on and he starts preaching again. You're talking about a bad day at work. He just gets up and keeps going. I mean, that might not speak as much to you as it does to me. Because besides being a pastor, there's not a day goes by I'm not sharing Jesus with people. Yes, it's my life's joy. And rejection is hard. And God taught me many years ago, this is what you do. He reminds me when I'm over there and I'm soaking. Oh God, nobody wants to know you. He goes, remember Brother Brown. Remember Brother Brian. Remember Brother Patty. Remember Brother Carl. Remember, sister, this. Remember? And then all of a sudden, you got to be reminded of everything God used you for. And to be reminded that God is in full control. Any man? God's in full control. You can rest assured that this getting up of Paul was accompanied by prayers and tears and compassion. Must have been there. Rising up a Paul, but Luke just seems to move on from this, sort of saying, this is all just in a day's work over here. This is the apostle job. This is an on-the-job passage. You know, if you're an apostle 2,000 years ago, guess what? Chances are you're going to be stoned every once in a while. <laughs> we sit here, nice room, Salvation Army's good to us. But you know what's taking place now in other parts of the world? They're in little dungy apartments, blacked out windows, candlelight, reading the Bible, praying, holding hands, and hoping they don't bang down the door and get persecuted. Let's listen to verse 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Understand something. You're having a hard time. People don't want to hear you. Stay with it. There'll always be many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And what were they doing? They weren't pouring out their heart. They weren't, oh, you know, it's getting tough around here. No. They took it upon themselves to continue to strengthen the souls of the disciples. That's what we have to do. We got to forget the bad experience. We got to forget the persecution. 
We've got to forget the mocking and the laughing at us because we're Christian and we believe in the Bible and we believe in Jesus and we believe in eternal life and we believe in forgiveness and we believe in the Trinity and they want to mock us and they want to laugh at us like there's something wrong with us. we just got to keep moving forward. And that's why I tell you, how in the world can you make it without church? I was beaten left and right this week. The last thing I need to be now is watching a game at a bar. I need to be with other Christians, other disciples. I need to be encouraged. I'm not going to get that anywhere else. I got that here. I get it here from you people, my brothers and my sisters in Christ. That's how I'm encouraged. He goes on his way, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying this, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. As we come to a close of Paul's first missionary journey, we are reminded that nothing ever stops God's message. Remember that. That's one of the themes of the book of Acts. They continue to preach. They continue to make disciples. They continue to strengthen the faith of the new believer. How many people want to enjoy God? Get around some new believers. My life is enriched. I got new believers. I got old believers. I'm like, God's throwing people at me. And I'm like, how dare I got to repent sometimes, even with tears, and say, God, forgive me. I'm taking my eye off the prize. God's treasures are everywhere. If you're willing to take time and sit down and listen to somebody and what God's doing in someone else's life, it's magnificent. Find out what God is doing. Get involved in someone else's life. Strengthen some disciples. How's that? Go for it. They continue to strengthen the faith of the new believers and reminded everyone that genuine Christian faith is always... Genuine Christian faith is always accompanied with persecutions, hardships, social, being socially ostracized, and great misunderstandings of who we are as people. It always happens. Through many tribulations. But, one, but when you know you have good news, then you learn just to move on. Just to move on. Do you know the joy of just moving on? Do you know the joy of saying, Lord, I did the best I can here. I'll leave them to you now. I'm just going to move on. Let's go to some application over here and we'll close. First one. As I mentioned several times already, <coughs> contextualization. We've got to get to know the audience. We just can't meet somebody and start telling them about Jesus and need to be saved. Some evangelists do that. I want you to know something. I get my car washed up near St. Finbar, hand car wash. I've been going up there for many years. New owner, Muslim fellow. I'm befriending him, and we're knowing and we're talking. He calls me father. He thinks I'm a priest. <laughs> I just go with it, you know. I told him a pastor, but he still calls me father, so... <laughs> I'm there the other day, and I'm sitting down, and I'm reading, and, 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 and a wife and a husband come in, and this guy's a true evangelist. How you doing? My name is so-and-so. And he starts talking to him about Jesus immediately, telling him that Islam is not the way. He started correcting his Islam. He knew, the, he knew And I'm sitting back, and I'm going, praise God. Praise God. I loved it. That's not me. I'm the guy who's going to be there twice a week with Terry's car and my car, talking to him. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take 10 years. I'll meet his every need. And then I'll talk to him about the Lord. But this guy's an evangelist. He goes right in there. He goes, and that, that's God's gifting. I loved it. That makes some people uncomfortable. That's not the way God does it. Sometimes God raises up somebody to walk alongside you. And then some guy, sometimes God will come and tell you. This guy was telling him. It was magnificent. Then I met him. We exchanged numbers. We had a good laugh. And, and I hear him say, no, the guy, he's, the, he's the father. Go talk to him. Go talk to the priest. <laughs> Praise God. But contextualization takes time. And that's the point I want to make. You've got to know people. You've got to walk with people. You've got to understand people. You have to really have a genuine compassion for people. You have to be friendly. You have to be civil. You've got to listen to what people say. You've got to be a good listener. 
it's in these times that you're taking on understanding. And it's not one size fits all. And with great patience, you teach people about the vain things. I can go on and on. This week I had more encounters. I had another one in Starbucks yesterday. A guy I know for many years, he's reading a philosophy book. He's always talking to me about philosophy. And I said, but really, can you take that to the grave? I was honest with him. I said, do you want to die with that? Is that going to meet your greatest need when you hear the worst news? Are you going to really, really, really trust in what you just told me when the time comes and you hear the most ungodly, untiming news you never want to hear? Is that what's going to do it? I got something better for you, I said. I said, come to church. Let's talk about Jesus Christ. I know you're a reader. I know you're a thinker. Let's get together. Let's talk about these things. And he took me up on it. So we're going to meet this week, hopefully, and we're going to talk about these things. Because you have to know people. Am I making sense with this? Not the one size fits all. You've got to walk with people. Get to know people. You know what that does? It stops us from demonizing people. As though they're different. And they don't want to hear. We got to be very careful to fall into that political trap of demonization. Very careful of that. Here's another one. Show his glory. The crippled man, as I said, everyone knew this man. And God handpicked this man, handpicked this gentleman to do something incredible in his life that everybody who knew him and everybody did know him would recognize that something fantastic has happened. And this man knows that Jesus did it. And that's your job and that's mine. When God does something wonderful in your life and God does something wonderful in my life, we are like this crippled man. We should sit there and continue to tell people, this is why I'm changed. God has done something great in me. Let me share my faith with you. Do you know every one of us here was spiritually crippled from our birth? We were worse. We were born in sin, the Bible says. We come out of the womb spiritually dead. I know we go through a little baptism and we wash the original sin away. It didn't go anywhere. The little tot we love is going to be a spiritual monster one day. And we got to tell them about Jesus. We got to tell them about the need to be saved. We got to nurture the kids in the back so one day they can come to faith in Jesus Christ. But all of us have something really marvelous to share. We're a local church. I'm a local pastor. I'm still in the gym. I was talking to a man the other day. He goes, when are you going to leave the gym? I said, when God takes me home. He wants me here. I get more done for the kingdom of God in the gym than I can anywhere else. Am I right? That's where God has me. That's where I want to be. I love people. I want, I want them to see there's a changed life going on here. We're all examples. And the last one, if Satan can't get you a persecution, he'll try to take you out with praise. How do we deal with the accolades of men? They wanted to work, they were worshiping Paul and Barnabas. A lot of televangelists like that kind of praise. People like to hear their names spoken. People really enjoy that. But Paul goes the opposite way, and we all should. We should do everything we possibly can, never, ever, to get the praises that belong to God and take them to ourselves. Always remind people when they say, yeah, but you did something. A guy say, no, Brian, you were an athlete. You did. I said, listen to me, I'm telling you now, I did nothing. Amen. I said, God did it all for me. Amen. All for me. Take no credit. Let them know that God has done everything for us. Paul and Barnabas were horrified to think that they were being praised. How careful we have to be to hear our name praised. How careful we have to be to hear our name elevated. How careful we have to be to stay as far away as we can from the praises of men. That is so seducing. That really, really is seducing. And Satan loves that. You know, Satan tried to do that on Christ. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just sit down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. As a matter of fact, we have to go as far as downplaying our role in anything. 
we have to make sure that only Christ gets the glory. And that's something we take very serious in this church. Only Jesus Christ. When you come in here, you'll hear bits and story of John's life and maybe bits and story of my life. But all, it's only to point to who, how awesome Jesus Christ is. The last thing you want to know is me. You want to know Christ in me. Amen? Amen. It is all about God. It is all, whatever you have at all, let me tell you a secret. If you have the world's goods, it's because God gave it to you. If you have stature and prominence and intelligence and, and you can be, uh, have all the good looks and you can have it all, understand something, you better learn how to downplay that so they only see God and not you. Amen. That takes work. That takes humble work. But we got to be careful of that. Because there's two things. Some men love to be praised. And other men love to praise men. Name dropping. Oh, so-and-so this, and oh, so-and-so that, and oh, so-and-so this, and so-and-so this. When you know, it's like you're building yourself up by throwing names around. Christians don't do that. One name that's above every name gets all the glory. Jesus Christ, let's pray. I'm going to pray, and we're going to go into uh, communion. I ask you for communion... I don't know what your relationship is with Christ, but if you never ask Christ to come into your life in a personal way and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Let me have a brand new start with the Father. Lord, I need you in my life. Are you here today? And you really sense that you know you need the personal touch of God in you. Not just thoughts about God. Not just activities about God. Not just religious devotions about God, but you need the person of God, the Holy Spirit himself. Ask him to come into your life. A matter of fact, when the elements go around, participate. And when you take the body of Christ and you take the blood of Christ, thank him that you're born again. Ask him to come and forgive you and to live in you and start a brand new relationship with the Father. Ushers, if you don't mind, please.